have you ever, uh, has someone ever hurt you, intentionally or not, has someone ever hurt you, and your first reaction or response or reflex was to hurt them back or to want to hurt them back? One hand. A couple of hands. Today, this morning, already, right now. Uh, we see this maybe most blatantly in sports where emotions come to the surface and are expressed quickly and sometimes without our normal filters or our best decision making. We see it in the NBA. We see it in the uh, Golden State Warriors. Draymond Green, God bless him, is a living, breathing, walking example of exactly this phenomenon, is he not? I see it in soccer games that I referee if a player feels like they got fouled in a way that was worthy of being uh, noted by the referee but uh, doesn't get the call, then you can pretty much count on over the next couple of minutes that player is going to foul, if not that same player who he thought fouled him, then another player on the opposing team. That's kind of the way it works. It is what it is, kind of human nature. To those of you who are married, has your spouse ever said something to you that hurt you and you actually shot back with them with an equally or greater remark that hurt them? Ever happened? Three of you. Yeah, okay. Or any of us, have you ever criticized or belittled or insulted someone, another person on social media, and before you could retract or delete that stupid remark, they returned the favor? ever happen with anyone here? Maybe, maybe not. So has anyone ever hurt you and your first reaction was to hurt them back and your second reaction was to hurt them back and your third reaction was to hurt them back or at least to want them feel some of your wrath to suffer a little bit and to get what you would think of as justice? If that's ever been the case for you, if you've ever had that experience emotionally, cognitively, relationally, or situationally in your reflexes, Jesus has some good news for you and for me and for a better way of being, which may be, as it's gonna turn out in just a moment, hard to swallow, but always, always, always good and good news. Uh, before we read about that, let's pray together one more time. God, help us to be available to you. You've made yourself fully available to us. You've come from the heavens and from eternity and made yourself known in Jesus. For him, we're deeply grateful. Our lives revolve around him. Uh, they must. He is the center of all things, the one from whom all things came, the one for whom all things are. Draw us into your life this morning through your word. Give us eyes to see, ears that are good to hear, hearts that are fertile soil to receive what you would plant within us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they immediately be forgotten. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're continuing this morning with our study of the Sermon on the Mount found in the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Most of you have been with us for lots or many or all of these seven weeks up to this point. You've got a good sense of the context of who Jesus was speaking to, what he was speaking about, what it seems he was hoping to accomplish through his sermon, through his many-pointed teaching and preaching. Jesus came, we've said, announcing and proclaiming the kingdom of God and its nearness, its availability, its accessibility in a new way, in a way that maybe it had never been available and accessible before. Therefore, he wanted 
and he called people to repent or to change their mind or to reconsider or to look at things differently, to think anew, not just about sin, but about all of life, about the kingdom of God, about their reality, about God. Think differently, think, think new. Change your ways, change your mind, change your life, particularly with regard to this thing that he called the kingdom. And to that end, Jesus taught about anger and murder and lust and adultery and divorce and adultery and, tell, and about telling the truth. We've talked about these things the last four weeks, about living in the truth, being a person of truth, about living in the light and the difference that that can and will make in one's heart and in one's relationships and leads to actual freedom and joy and abundance. In the passage before us this morning, it's the fifth of Jesus' sixth antitheses, we've called them. Jesus, again, opens up to his disciples and all who will, who will listen the realities of the human heart and how one might access and live in God's kingdom. Jesus' fifth and sixth antitheses are very much, we're not even halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, but they are in many ways the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount. And while greatly admired, this passage in particular and the one next week are also deeply resented because they are hard. But they reveal to us and they open up to us the way of life in God's kingdom. So beginning at chapter five of Matthew's gospel, verse 38, listen closely. These are the words of God. This is the word of God through the son of God, Jesus. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Tunic and cloak are kind of closer Greek words. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And once again, Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, but not just a Jewish rabbi, Jesus begins with this antithetical phrase, antitheses we've called them. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and once again asserts his unique authority into the scriptures, not so much to reinterpret the Jewish scriptures, but to go deeper, to get back to their heart, to get back to what they really intended to communicate. To the heart of God's law given through Moses, sorting through its through the various ways that God's law had been practiced and manipulated over the centuries, the ways that it had been twisted and added to and subtracted from and obfuscated and misunderstood, abused, and in some ways, therefore, lost or forgotten. And such again is the case here. Jesus once again quotes a passage from the heart of the Jewish law, this time from the 21st chapter of the book of Exodus, which reads a little bit more fully like this. But if there's a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise which was not only a Jewish or Mosaic or Israelite idea, but rather it was the oldest idea or law in the world called the Lex Talonius, or the Law of Talon, which first appeared in the earliest known code of laws in human history, the Code of Hammurabi, some 1,300 years before King David. Rewind back to 2300 B.C. And it made sense in this law known casually as tit for tat, it made sense, it makes sense to our logical minds, sort of. But there were at least a couple of problems with this law and its 
implementation in Jesus' day. Led by the scribes and the Pharisees who were widely recognized as the experts and the authorities in the law and the scriptures in Jewish tradition. There were at least two problems with how they interpreted and enforced this law. First, they understood this law to be personal rather than civil. And second, they taught that this law was a requirement rather than a limit. First things first. The Ten Commandments, which you know were given by God to Moses up on Mount Sinai during his 40 days up on that mountain in the dark cloud. Those are recorded for us first in Exodus chapter 20 and then later again in Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy. The Ten Commandments in chapter 20, Exodus, are clearly directed at individuals. Exodus 20, if you read it, clearly directed at individuals. However, beginning at chapter 21 of Exodus and going chapter 21, 22, 23, something called the Book of the Covenant, the laws or the ordinances there are directed at, a, at society as a whole. They're, they are a detailed application of the Ten Commandments for individuals, but now for society as a whole. And they functioned for the Jewish nation moving through the wilderness and then into the promised land like a civil law code. And if you read those three chapters, 21, 22, 23, you will find a fascinating collection of laws given to govern a nation and communities and relationships and business, business practices and commerce and community life and so on. With the laws being enforced, those laws being enforced we're reading the scriptures by a system and a network of judges. But the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' time evidently extended from chapters 21 to 23 the principle of just retribution from the law courts where those laws belong to the realm of personal relationships where they did not belong. Moreover, they tried to use those civil laws or ordinances to justify personal revenge although the law explicitly forbade such. For example, from the book of Leviticus, you shall take no revenge or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people. Chapter 19, verse 18. Thus, this excellent, if stern, principle of judicial retribution was being utilized as an excuse for the very thing it was established and instituted to abolish, namely personal revenge. I'm gonna get you back. You did this to me. I'm gonna do this to you. Almost our human nature. It's the story of the tragic relationship between the Hatfields and the McCoys, which with, with whom some of you may be familiar back from uh, the Appalachian area of the United States in the 1880s, 1890s, one person, another person, and then a family, and another family, and an extended family, and an extended family, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, not just for centuries, but for more than 100 years, chipping away at each other. You did this to me. You accelerated, you elevated, I'm gonna get you back. Ukraine, Ukraine attempts to destroy Mr. Putin's beloved bridge. So he sends 100 cruise missiles. You knock, knock out my bridge, I'm gonna knock out your power, your utilities, your people. Tit for tat, you did it to me, I'm gonna do it to you. I can get you back. And then the other way in which Jesus', con Jesus contemporaries misunderstood, misapplied, or misused this well-known law was to imply that the law required a punishment. That at a minimum, uh, a punishment had to fit the crime or match the crime. That was at least equal to the transgression that had been committed. If you knock out my tooth, I'm gonna knock out your tooth. I get to. It's the law. 
I'm going to. If you bruise me, I'm gonna bruise you. If you kill my animal, I'm gonna kill your animal, tit for tat. What you did to me, I get to do to you, legally. Of course, there were several problems with that, many of which are addressed in chapters 21, 22, 23 of Exodus. The first, of course, is that such retribution only furthers the loss, hurt, suffering, and discord. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr., who was heavily influenced not only by Jesus, but especially his Sermon on the Mount, stated more than once, if we do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we will be a blind and toothless nation. It's true. Second, it's quite possible that an eye that was initially gouged out or otherwise caused to be lost may not be equal to an eye that was gouged out as punishment. The first may have been an 80-year-old eye with a cataract. But the eye that was gouged out was a 20-year-old eye seen 2020. That's not fair either. There's a problem with that sort of justice. Third, if you kill my bull, what good does it do me for your bull to be killed as punishment? None at all, except for some sick sense of justice because now your loss will be more or less as great as mine, but we, we both end up losing. So by Jesus' time, even back in Moses' time, some of these civil laws were actually never practiced and they ceased to be practiced. In some cases, a fine or a financial penalty was leveled on a perpetrator, much as is done today in civil cases in our world. I don't know if you read about it, there's a new state park coming online in Texas uh, in 2023, woohoo, called, called the Palo Penton Pinto State Park, the Palo Penton, Palo Pinto Mountains State Park in North Texas. 5,000 gorgeous acres. Do you wanna know where the acres came from? There was a barroom brawl a number of years ago in North Texas. Good old-fashioned rural small-town barroom brawl between two men jealous about a woman. One guy ends up killing the other guy with a gun. They pulled out their guns. One guy ends up dead. As a way of addressing the injustice that had happened, the family of the convicted killer gave to the other family 5,000 acres with the understanding that it would be handed over to the state to become a state park. A different kind of justice, but a different kind of way of doing rather than tit for tat. What good would it have done for the other man to be executed except to bring more heart, more harm, more loss, more grief, and more suffering? You followed, uh, if you follow the news this week, you saw the responses, the verdict from the Parkland school shooting case. And the verdict and the responses of many of the family when the perpetrator did not get the death penalty but instead life in prison. And the grief that some of those people felt that he was not gonna be executed as their family, their friends, their children, their parents, had been in his shooting rampage. Not to get political, but what good would it have done to kill him as well? Is the question that Jesus asks. The eye for the eye, the eye for an eye law did not require or obligate equal harm being done to the perpetrator, but instead set such as a ceiling, which could not be, which was not to be exceeded. So then Jesus 
talks about this whole thing about not resisting evil in a way that had been done up to that point, not responding to evil, not thinking that one had the right to respond to evil in that way. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, but I say to you. And so Jesus introduces a totally different and new way. And it is the beginning of mercy. A few things are worth saying about some of the four little illustrations or cameos that Jesus used as explanation for his response and for his deeper teaching about the law. First, they will turn the other cheek. That is, if someone, it doesn't say hit, it doesn't say strike, as much as slaps you on the cheek, on the right cheek. And if you're right-handed, as most people are, how do you hit someone on the right cheek? in front of you. It's really hard to be effective with such a punch. It just doesn't happen. But what was going on is what you see in old English movies or TV where someone takes off their, their glove and slaps across the right side of someone's face in this manner. And so what Jesus is talking about here is not so much a physical punch, but an insult to a person. A slap was more in Jewish culture an insult rather than to inflict pain or damage. And so Jesus says, if someone insults you, take it and don't respond. He doesn't say if someone mugs you, if someone beats you up, if someone harms you physically to just stand there and take it. If someone hurts a member of your family physically to stand and take it. But what Jesus is saying is if someone insults you with a backhanded comment or swipe, take it, take it. Let him have your shirt as well, Jesus says. And the idea and the context, which is always important, was the Jewish people commonly had an undershirt, a normal shirt, and then a cloak. They dressed in layers. And someone was allowed to take in a suit, a lawsuit, anything that belonged to a person, if that's what the judge says, but don't take their cloak as well. Because a cloak is, was not just their outer garment, their outer jacket, but it was the blanket in which they slept. It's the way they stayed warm. And so Jewish law said, don't keep a person's outer garment overnight, lest they become cold and become unsick and unhealthy. And so Jesus says, differently than anyone would have expected, if someone takes your cloak, your shirt, give them your cloak as well. Give them what you have. And so surprise them, not just with justice and what you have the right to do, which is to keep one's cloak, but give them more. Give them more. Jesus' third little illustration says, if a policeman or other responsible official in today's context. In that context, it was even worse because Jesus has in mind the occupying Roman army. If a Roman soldier asks you to carry his backpack, his luggage, his instruments of war and oppression, if he asks you to carry them one mile, carry them two, though you had, the law only said you have to carry them one mile. And he could commandeer is the Greek word. 
anyone he wanted to carry his things because he was tired, because he didn't want to, because he just wanted to lay a burden on someone. Pick it up and carry it. And that person would get to the end of that mile and know, I just walked 1,600 steps, here I am. The end, and Jesus says, pick it up, keep it up, go another mile. Why? To show him that you do not resent him, but instead you love him because Christ loves him, and you are living in the love of Christ. And then fourth, give to him who asks you. Give to him who asks you. And it's almost this open-ended Jesus saying, give everything, give without limits, keep giving and giving. Of course, there must be limits on that. What are the limits of giving? Our limits are defined by Jesus himself. Give as Jesus would give. A few things about it's wrong to think. It's wrong to think that Jesus is opposed to self-defense or the defense of our loved ones. Uh, Jesus, several times in the gospel, his disciples are found carrying swords with them as they go to protect themselves from robbers, from thieves, from people who would do them harm. Jesus was not saying that evil should not ever be resisted because Jesus demonstrated from his own life a resistance and an opposition to evil in all sorts of forms, beginning with his temptation in the wilderness. Human trafficking were not to ignore but to address and resist evil in that way. Jesus is clearly talking about something different and it's deeply personal. And that there is no place, uh, Jesus is not saying, there's no place for punishment or retribution in society. Romans 13 talks about the role of government and that Jesus' people were to be respectful of the government that God had put in place to bring about justice in its right and fair forms accurately and calmly. But Jesus calls people now to be a people who can handle insult. When people throw things at you, we can take them. And the way Bonhoeffer says to discontinue, to put an end to anger and hate and injustice and retribution and vengeance and getting back at other people and tit for tat is not to fire back, but to absorb it, to absorb it which God in Christ gives us the power to do through his spirit. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. Rewind to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mountain, what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are insulted. Jesus says yes. And he has gone before us and he would go before them on a cross absorbing the insults, not only the strikes and the spears and the hammer and the nails, but the insults, the mocking of the whole city in front of him, responding not with insults back or with condemnation, but a whole different way of dealing with one's enemies by absorbing their insults in the grace of God and by the power of God and in the love of God. That is the only way, Bonhoeffer says, that evil comes to an end in our world. 
This the man who opposed in every way the evil of Hitler, not vengefully responding, but finding ways to respond in love and according to the scriptures. Bonhoeffer wrote, the passion of Christ is the victory of divine love over the powers of evil. And therefore, it is the only supportable basis for Christian obedience. The cross is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and vanquish evil. But it was just this participation in the cross which the disciples were granted when Jesus called them to him. They are called blessed because of their visible participation in Jesus' cross. The prolific uh, Bible commentator William Barclay wrote, few passages of the New Testament have more of the essence of the Christian ethic in them than this one. Here is the characteristic ethic of the Christian life and the conduct which should distinguish the Christian from other people. Willard, Dallas Willard, talks about this is not another set of rules and laws for us to do, but these are just examples of how people who have entered into the kingdom of God, the realm of God, the reign of God in their lives respond. What becomes eventually a natural response to people who are in Christ and in his kingdom when they are insulted, when they are persecuted, when they are threatened, when they are hurt, and they, we, all will be today and tomorrow and continually. The Apostle Paul picked up on this, though he never walked with Jesus in person, but somehow he picked up on this through the Spirit of God and the voice of God and the presence of Jesus in his life. And he wrote to the Romans, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Which is where we're, where we're headed in next week's few verses in Jesus' sixth antithesis. Overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in the power and the spirit of Jesus, we can do this. We will all be insulted either because of who we are in Christ are simply because we live in a fallen and many ways evil world. But the one who overcame evil on a cross and who lives in us gives us the power and the direction and the way and the example to live and to be fundamentally differently so that the kingdom that is near can come upon us. Jesus uh, said early in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember, 
He was inviting people to a kind of righteousness or goodness that far surpassed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes of his day. Eye for an eye worked for them. They happily were ready at any opportunity to exact justice and to carry out revenge in their own terms, in their own way. Jesus' way, Jesus' higher and surpassing righteousness or goodness is so fundamentally different. You remember weeks ago we talked about who has the good life and who is really good. Who has the good life and who is really good? Jesus says the person who does not return evil for evil is the really good one and has the good life. May we become those kind of people as we enter into eyes wide open, hearts available, and ready and willing to the kingdom of God that is near. Let's pray. Help each one of us, God, to let go of our right, our legal rights, our seeming moral rights to exact revenge, to get our way back at someone, to put our stake in the ground, to make our voice heard, to seek justice as we want justice. We thank you that in Jesus you have introduced to the law and to the way, now mercy that was always there but so hard for us to see, much less embrace, much less share with others. May we become merciful people who have no trouble handling insults because you have handled them for us and before us. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in that, God, bring about your kingdom, your reign, your glory, and your majesty, now and forevermore. Amen.